Welcome to another American Bankruptcy Institute podcast. I'm Kara Bruce, the ABI's resident scholar for the fall of 2013 and an associate professor at the University of Toledo College of Law. The Bankruptcy Reform Act of 1994 created within Chapter 11 of the Bankruptcy Code a streamlined and simplified reorganization process for small business debtors. These provisions were amended in 2005 to, among other things, shorten the debtor's deadlines for filing and confirming a plan, place additional disclosure and reporting obligations on small business debtors, and enhance the role of the United States trustee in small business cases. The 2005 amendments also added a detailed definition of a small business debtor to identify which debtors qualify for this special treatment. Professor Ann Lawton has joined me today to discuss the small business debtor definition and other matters affecting small business debtors in bankruptcy. Professor Lawton teaches bankruptcy, contracts, and commercial law at Michigan State University College of Law. Her article, An Argument for Simplifying the Code's Small Business Debtor Definition, appeared in the summer 2013 edition of the ABI Law Review. Welcome, Anne. Thank you. Thank you for asking me. So, Anne, as the title of your article suggests, you have a proposal for streamlining and simplifying the Bankruptcy Code's definition for small business debtors. Before we get to that, maybe you can tell our listeners some background about this topic. Why did Congress wish to isolate small business debtors for streamlined Chapter 11 treatment? Well, you know, it's not 100% clear because the legislative history, and I mentioned this in the article, uh, doesn't really give good reasons for some of the decisions that Congress made. But what I would say is this, is that we've got the 1997 report of the National Bankruptcy Review Commission, and Congress in 2005 adopted a lot of the Commission's recommendations, not the definition of a small business debtor, but a lot of the recommendations. And the Commission's concerns were that small business debtors just did poorly. And this has been a recurring theme probably for 20 years, the concern that small business debtors don't do well. And so the Commission basically suggested a group of reforms, some geared toward those debtors that they thought had a good chance of reorganizing, trying to expedite process, make it more efficient, cheaper, combining the disclosure statement and plan hearing. And then others were aimed at really getting rid of what I guess people would call the DOAs, right, the dead on arrival debtors. Get Mm -hmm. them out faster. And there was a fair amount of concern in that report about the fact that debtors languished in Chapter 11. The evidence doesn't show that, but that was what a theme in that commission report was. So I'm assuming that Congress shared those concerns, given the fact that they adopted so many of the commission's small business recommendations. I I can certainly see some of those considerations as you trace the the development of these provisions at the beginning part of of your article. Uh, Why don't you walk us through uh, the small business debtor definition uh, as it stands now? Uh, So what is that definition and what are some of the problems you see with it? Okay, yeah, so I... Let me do this. There's at least four, possibly more, problem areas, uh, but I identified at least four in my article. And what I'm going to talk about is sort of concentrate really on Part A of that definition. Part B talks about group of affiliated debtors, which, of course, is a problem because it's not defined anywhere what Mm -hmm. that means. But in Part A, what, (laughs) what it says is 
Essentially, you're a small business debtor if, number one, you're a person, right, an individual or a, a business entity that's in business, commercial or business activities. So long as your primary activity is not the business of owning or operating real property, and so long as your liabilities, and you have to exclude a bunch of contingent, unliquidated, affiliate, insider debt, are less than, I think the number now is $2,490,925. And so long as the U.S. trustee has not appointed a committee, an official creditor's committee. So if you check all those boxes and you fit all of those, pick off all those items, you'd be a small business debtor. Mm -hmm. The problem is that this is a really complicated definition. So what I saw is some of the problems. Number one, uh, there's a requirement that you be engaged in business, commercial activity. It's not clear why that exists. And the commission's definition from 97 had no such requirement. Number two, um, who knows what this primary activity is the business of owning or operating real property even means not defined anywhere. It's not the same as a single asset real estate case. And again, the legislative history doesn't tell us why it's in there. Number three, in order to figure out liabilities, you have to subtract off, according to the code, contingent, unliquidated, affiliate, and insider debt. The problem with that is that nowhere on any of the forms the debtor has to file does the debtor have to itemize that stuff. And then the fourth is this weird drafting mistake where it says the U.S. trustee appoints the committee. So that's a problem in those six districts in North Carolina and Alabama where the bankruptcy administrator operates, not the U.S. trustee. Mm-hmm. So those are four biggies. Yeah, and I see a, you know, a recurring theme in your argument is, is that all of these things sort of clutter the definition and, and create uncertainty that leads to uh, a greater likelihood of litigation. Is that, is that a fair statement? Yes, that's right. And that was actually, it's, that's a nice way to put it, because the commission made that exact comment in its report in 97, which is, they were trying to figure out, do we want a more complicated or a bright line? Mm-hmm. They said bright line. Bright line minimizes litigation, and it gets people to focus in on the merits of the case. So that's exactly right. But the problem here is what they what would maybe appear to be a bright line definition has a lot of moving parts that that are difficult to lock down at the very start of a case. That's correct. That's, I mean, there are a lot of problems with the definition, um, because it makes it hard both for debtors to figure some stuff out, right? Like, mm-hmm. what does the primary activity, is the business of owning or operating real property mean? I point this out in the article. Is it based on the time you devote to it, the revenue or income you generate from it, a combination of both? Who knows? It's not fine. It's not a single-asset real estate, because that primary activity language was added in 94 at the same time, Congress defines single-asset real estate. Mm-hmm. So they made a decision to use two definitions here. Uh, so I don't know what that means. So if I don't know what it means, <laughs> it's likely that debtors' lawyers don't know what it means, and debtors don't know what it means. Right, and you've got some great um, case examples of that. Who who am I and, and what do I do uh, yeah. from the debtors' perspective? Yeah, so that's one problem. The other problem is... The harder you make the definition, 
the more difficult it is for those parties who might want to challenge the debtor's designation, which, you know, for example, the U.S. trustee and a party in interest can do under the bankruptcy rules. I think it's 1020. And so if you make it harder to figure stuff out, it's harder to actually challenge the designation that the debtor checks on the petition box. So, for example, what I said before, if you look at the bankruptcy forms, you have a summary of schedules, and you've got to summarize what all your debts, your liabilities, your assets are. And, you know, there's checkboxes on the petitions, but there's no checkbox anywhere that says you have to tell somebody how much affiliate debt you have or you have to total your contingent liabilities, you have to total your unliquidated liabilities, you have to total your insider debt. So how is someone supposed to figure that out, short of going through every page of the schedule to look at, you know, whether you check contingent, for example, or checking who your insiders and your affiliates are? It's a lot of work. So that makes it difficult for somebody to, to, you know, mount a challenge to it. So what you arrive at, Anne, is it seems to be a a two-part definition for a small business debtor. On the one hand, you've really pared down the debt level requirements. And then on the other hand, you have this presence of a committee, which, which now has been appointed in the abstract instead of having language related to the United States trustee actually appointing that committee. Uh, So why were those two factors the most important to you to keep into the small business debtor designation? All right, so let me go back to the design of the uh, project. When I started out, we were collecting a lot of information. And one of the things that became clear over time was it was really difficult for me and my research assistants to even figure out, in some cases, the primary activity question. And there was no case law. We didn't, so we had all these cases, and we're thinking, well, is this one one? Is this one not one? So that was difficult to determine. So what I did was we still answered the question, but there was a lot of uncertainty about our answers on those kinds of questions, right? So what we did instead, what I did when I designed the statistical analysis was say, okay, well, let's look at committees, because that's binary. You either have one or you don't have one, right? That's easy. And then liabilities, while it's a pain to actually have to collect all the information, there's a summary of schedule, so you got a total. And then the debtors will check stuff on the schedule, the little box that says it's contingent or unliquidated. And you can find information about affiliates and insiders from various questions, like question 21 on the Statement of Financial Affairs or the list of equity holders. So it was, we, I felt a little bit more confident about the results I was getting. So what it did then was test it individually, and this is Wenning Feng. He's a doctoral student at MSU, and he did the statistical analysis for that Arizona paper. And what we found, found was the following. If a committee, an official committee of unsecured creditors, I didn't look at other kinds of committees, was formed, the plan confirmation rate was 60-some percent whereas it was significantly lower if there was no committee. And I also found that when you, you know, carved up debtors and said, okay, let's look at debtors below $2 million, which was 2004, and then above, again, there was a statistically significant difference in plan confirmation rates. So each of those things individually is a good predictor, actually, of plan confirmation rates. 
So what I did in the ABI article was then combine the two of them and say, all right, let's put them together. When you put them together, in my, using that simple definition, about 63% of the pool, the random sample, are small business debtors. And again, what I found was anyone I put into that category with that simple definition with just those two predictors, those so that they either had a committee or their liabilities were over the $2 million mark, they confirmed plans at a rate of, I believe it was 48% with the confirmation rate, whereas it was significantly lower, 26% perhaps, for uh, small business debtors. Again, statistically significant difference. So I thought, all right, we've got two really good predictors, um, and why not just use those really good predictors? One of the things, the other thing that I found in the Arizona article, which I did, was we looked at liabilities above and below $2 million, counting liabilities as just what was put on the total liabilities for the summary of schedules. And then we also tested it looking at liabilities minus contingent and unliquidated debt. And what we found was it doesn't make a difference. While it makes a difference in some cases, it'll, you know, those on the borderline, when you look across a large sample of about 800 cases, plan confirmation rates are still significantly different, whether you include contingent unliquidated debt or you exclude it. Since it's such a pain to do, Let's just use the simple definition. <laughs> Absolutely. So the weeding... So that was a long answer to your question. No, no, it, it, it makes a lot of sense. So you're essentially accomplishing the weeding structure, the weeding function uh, that Congress intended, or uh, we suppose they intended, I guess. You're accomplishing that with, with a lot less data and a lot less uncertainty. That makes a lot yeah. of sense. Good, I'm glad. <laughs> And your paper also features an empirical analysis. That's really the tail end of your paper and some of, of your paper that I found to be particularly interesting. Uh, you talk about success rates of Chapter 11 cases uh, and, and in such a way that supports your small business definition. Uh, so why don't you walk us through your methodology with this study and, and some of the conclusions you've reached? I started, the first part of this project was the Arizona Law Review article that looked at committee formation and then liabilities. And in that article, I tested committee formation separately, then liability limits, both the $2 million limit that the code put into place in 94 and the $5 million limit that the commission recommended in 97. And I also tested whether it made a difference if you included or excluded contingent and unliquidated debt. So that study lays all of that out. And what I found is that committee formation and total liabilities, uh, including contingent and, unli contingent and unliquidated debt, are very good predictors of plan confirmation. So what I did in the ABI article was put the two of those things together, used the same sample of cases, and sorted them, saying, all right, any case that has a committee or that has liabilities total on the summary of schedules more than $2 million, it's a non-small business. Any case that has no committee and liabilities under is a small business debtor. And then what ended up was about 63% of that sample 780-some-odd debtors 
turned out to be small business debtors. So then what I did was I ran that stuff using the, um, a statistical program just to check to see whether there was a statistically significant difference, and there was. Uh, so that gives you a little bit of background, sort of an overview. Now, as I understand it, one of the major changes uh, with BAPSIPA was, uh, and that's the, the amendments in 2005, of course, was the shift uh, of small business designation from something that was more of an election to something that that was a requirement. If you met the definition, you're now a small business debtor. And I understand that that was not the most popular shift. So I'm curious whether whether you considered proposing an adjustment that that would permit an opt-in or opt-out uh, structure. And if so, why was a bright line test preferable to you? Well, you know that's interesting because uh, we did collect data. We just haven't. I just haven't analyzed it yet as to whether because this is 2004, for my 2004 sample, whether debtors, how many of them elected to be treated as small business debtors, and how many actually were small business debtors. So I haven't analyzed that yet. Um, so that's one of the reasons why I didn't really talk about that in the article. But I think that I agree with the Commission's intuition here, which is that unless you make it mandatory, you're not going to really address the problem if there is a problem, first of all, um, that you think you have, people are going to opt out because there are downsides to being a small business debtor. There's extra reporting requirements. There's shorter time frames to get a plan proposed and confirmed, right? Mm-hmm. So why would you sign on for that if you didn't have to sign on for it? And that's the reason Congress and the Commission recommended making it mandatory, and you've been assisting the ABI in its efforts to study comprehensive reform of Chapter 11 bankruptcy. And I thought we'd spend the last few minutes here looking beyond the scope of your paper to larger ideas about small business bankruptcies. So what are the, some of the things you'd like to see happen as, as Congress and, and first the ABI looks at small business bankruptcy reform? Bigger picture, I'd like to see more empirical work uh, done on what the problems are facing small business debtors. We don't really know, and the problem is everybody has an idea about how to fix it, but we don't really know why small business debtors fare so poorly. There's a statistically significant difference in cl- plan confirmation rates. So is it because of Chapter 11, or is it just a function of the fact that small business debtors may be weaker, and hence they're going to fail anyway, even if you have a better system. And so that's one of the things I'd like us to, to talk about and figure out, as well as what we think would be a good result. So people are talking about how bad you know, the plan confirmation rates are, and they're not great for small business debtors, uh, and they're substantially lower than for non-small. But what would be good? In other words, is a 5% increase good? A 10, do we need a 10% increase? Do we have to match non-small business debtors? Nobody really ever talks about that. And the problem then is you don't have a good idea of what you're aiming for. And then, you know, you get a bunch of proposals, and we don't have any way of measuring whether what we're doing is affecting what we think the problem is. So that's sort of big picture for me. There's a... More specifically, one of the things that I found from the 2004 data was the following. The 45-day 
plan confirmation deadline in 1129E, mm-hmm. and the, the 300-day uh, plan proposal deadline in 1121, we need to pitch them. <laughs> I think we've got sufficient data to actually say they're not a good idea. And, and here's why. Before, my date is 2004. Um, Senator, and she was the prof- uh, professor then, Warren, and Jay Westbrook, Professor Westbrook, uh, did a study that was published in Michigan's Law Review back in 2009. And their data was from 94 and 2002. It wasn't every Chapter 11 case. It was multi-district. My data from 2004 is every a sample of from every Chapter 11 case filed in 2004. So... What we found was pretty consistent, which was cases were moving pretty fast through the system before BAPSEPA without any of these deadlines. The 45-day deadline, let me talk about that, because that would really have a bad effect if it had been in effect in 2004, and here's why. Of the sample of cases I had, 265 cases confirmed plans in the first run-through. Their initial disposition was confirmation. Of those 265 cases, only seven confirmed a plan within 45 days of the first plan being proposed. Only seven. And of those seven, only two were small business debtors. But if you look at all those 265 cases, 123 of them were small business debtors. So if those that 45-day rule was in effect in 2004, would we have had 123 small business debtors confirming plans? What would have happened if they had not confirmed within 45 days? What the data shows me or tells me is that if you're a lawyer in a Chapter 11 case, you better file for an extension on the 45 days when you file the plan. Well, that's silly. I mean, it's silly that it's a routine thing that you've got to extend the deadline because the deadline is so unworkable, and it's unclear why do we have that deadline? What's the reason for it? If you want an outer deadline on getting out of Chapter 11, why don't you set an outer deadline and say, okay, you've got to be out in a year from the time you file. But why create a 300-day filing and then this very short 45-day window to confirmation, which creates havoc because the cases are unclear about whether an amendment that's filed restarts that 45-day window. So you've got inconsistent decisions, and empirically, I I have no idea how that's going to work. I'm doing the 2007 data now, but it doesn't sound good based on the 2004 data. Well, and I know there's been a lot of coverage of uh, just the practicalities of getting all of the the notices sent and and stacking that all up and and how it's even possible within the 45-day deadline. So that makes a lot of sense, especially when your data and Professors Warren and Westbrook's data is suggesting that that Chapter 11 was already doing a pretty good job of weeding out the folks who need to be weeded out uh, early in the process. Yes, and that's another, let me go back to something, the 300-day deadline, but data is less, I guess, stark than the 45-day one. But um, when I looked at the whole pool of cases, all, I don't know, 780 to 800 in my sample. Um, and I looked at the time from petition filing, and I say petition filing, what I mean by that is you convert it into 11, right, from 7, you file the petition originally in 11, or in an involuntary case, the order for relief, because that's when the clock starts to tick, right? 
And when you count from that day to the disposition date, meaning you confirmed a plan, you dismissed the case, or the case was converted typically to seven, what I found was half the cases were gone in 280 days, 20 days short of a 300-day window. And by 345 days, which is 300 plus the 45, 60% of the cases were gone. And within a year, almost, I think it was 63.5% of the cases were gone. So they're moving pretty quick. And when you looked at what's left after a year, there were about, I don't know, 37% of cases that were still hanging around. Half of them were small business debtors. But here's the interesting thing. My definition, half of those were small business debtors, but in the whole sample, small business debtors were 63%. So in other words, more non-small business debtors were hanging around longer than a year than small business debtors, proportionally, right? Mm -hmm. So they were moving pretty quickly. And the cases that were left, that's the other piece of it, you know, this idea that somehow we've got small business debtors in there just abusing the heck out of the system, sitting around doing nothing, getting the benefit of the automatic stay, right, languishing. Well, as it turns out, 70% of those small business debtors that were still around after a year proposed a plan, and 73% of the ones that proposed a plan confirmed a plan. So confirmation may take longer in some cases. But what the data showed is, and Warren and Westbrook had similar findings, is that these dead-on-arrival, you-don't-have-a-chance-of-reorganizing cases, were, bankruptcy courts are doing a really good job of pitching them, getting rid of them pretty fast. So we put deadlines in that have created huge numbers of interpretive issues. There's all kinds of case law about what the 300-day deadline means. Does it reset? What about amendments? Does it apply to committee? filing a plan or just the debtor to the 45-day reset, that's ridiculous. <laughs> it's ridiculous when you didn't have a big problem to start out with. Okay, so definitely you'd remove a lot of uh, the time limitations on small business debtors because the languishing issue doesn't seem to be uh, one of, of, maybe it may be overstated in this case. Are there any other things you'd like to see changed? Um, I have something that is, is a very teeny corner of the universe, and I'm not sure I want it changed based on the fact that I've only got one year of data on it, but I think it's something to look into. Um, very few cases are involuntary Chapter 11s. In other words, you start in a Chapter 11 and you, as an involuntary case. Less than 1% of my sample, I think there are seven cases. One of those seven cases got dismissed by the petitioning creditors. Of the remaining six, a trustee was appointed in five of them. That's startlingly high because the whole pool of debtors, less than 5% of the cases was a trustee appointed. Yet in this small little universe with involuntary cases, five out of six. Now, it may just be a blip, right? And that's why I'm, I don't want to make a recommendation yet, but it's something to look at that if we're going to keep involuntary Chapter 11s, maybe create a rebuttable presumption so you're shifting the burden of proof to the debtor to say, no, I don't need a trustee, as opposed to the U.S. trustee coming in and saying he, he or she has to prove you do need one. But that's a very small corner of the universe, and I, if that change isn't made, the world will not come to an end. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Fair enough, but, but definitely uh, the perception and something that, that merits further inquiry. Yeah, it's another... 
a weird thing to look at. There's no shortage of those. Uh, back to small business bankruptcies, would you advocate for them to remain essentially as is with some tweaks? And, and what I mean by that is is sort of a fast track through the existing Chapter 11 framework. Or would you eventually like to see a return to the idea of a separate chapter for small business bankruptcies? That's a great question, and I don't have an answer for you. I don't feel confident enough say that returning would be better, right? There were problems with the old system, and there are problems with this system. I, my, I'll tell you what my bias is overall. My bias is that sometimes no system's perfect, and that you try and get the best system you can with what you're working with. And so I'd like to see more exploration of why small business debtors fail. Mm-hmm. We haven't done that. We, we know they do, and we know they fail at a much higher rate. But why? Because if it turns out that they're failing because that's the nature of what happens to many small businesses, then fixing Chapter 11 is not going to fix that problem, right? Yeah, and, and to the extent we're propping them up in Chapter 11, that may not be the most efficient result as well. That's correct, exactly. So if we could, and I'm not sure how to design that, I'd have to sit down and think about how to design an experiment. I mean, a study like that, not an experiment, but a study like that. I think that would be worthwhile looking at. But I don't have a a feel about whether we should have a separate chapter or not, largely because I don't know why, and I feel like I would just be making stuff up at that point and fixing something when it's not clear that the fix would fix problem. And what even the the problem is? That's what I don't know mm-hmm. what the problem is. In other words, I don't know whether the problem is the nature of the businesses that are small businesses, right? Or whether it's something in Chapter 11, the cost, mm-hmm. the complexity, or whether it's some combination, you know, of those two things. And I think it's important before we start fixing stuff also, as I said before, to figure out what we want as a result. In other words, right now, there's a low confirmation rate, right, overall. And it's because of small business debtors that we've got such a low confirmation rate. Well, what do we want, what do we want it to be at? In other words, if we increase the plan confirmation rate by five percentage points, right, mm-hmm. so from, let's say, 30% to 35% or something along those lines, is that good enough, or would people still be upset by that? And then the question is, how much resources do we have to devote to get that 5% increase? We don't know. And so that's one of the reasons why I did this study, because what I wanted to do was span, have the cases before BAPSIPA and after BAPSIPA. And so now I know what the plan confirmation rates were before BAPSIPA, and now I can look at the plan confirmation rates post-BAPSIPA, and I can see whether they increased. Um, and so then, if they did increase, the question would be how much, and was that a statistic, statistically significant difference or not? If it's not, then you got to ask yourself, well, if the goal was to do that, we didn't seem to accomplish it. And the same with time to disposition. I've got the data for 2004. I'll have it for 2007. And I can look, did we significantly decrease the time to disposition for small business cases? In other words, if you go from an average of getting rid of half your cases 
in 280 days and you move it to 275 days, was that worth it? I'd say no. <laughs> it's a, lot, a whole lot of work for, uh, for not too many days off. That's for, for sure. Yes, exactly. And I think that's one of the things that's not sufficiently brought forward in the conversation to bring out people's, uh, um, what people want from the process. What do they want to accomplish? How much of an increase? And what would satisfy that? Um, and how do you think you could go about changing it and fixing it? So I don't have an answer as to whether I think a separate chapter is better. I know some people have suggested Chapter 13 increasing the limits so that individuals who have high secure debt limits, for example, um, don't have to get bumped, for example, into Chapter 11. Mm -hmm. That might make some sense. Um, Individual debtors in my sample, there were about 10%. The problem is that that 10% is, is made up of people who have businesses, like sole proprietorships, basically, and also people who are true individual consumer debtors, for example, who may have gotten bumped out of 13. And I haven't parsed that difference yet to see how many people we're actually talking about. I have the data, I just haven't gotten around to doing that yet. Sounds like your future work will get us a little bit closer towards understanding how small business bankruptcies operate and and what we may want out of future Chapter 11 reform. And, and I look forward to reading what comes next. Well, that's all the time we have for today. Thank you, Anne, for joining me. Thank you very much. Listeners can find Anne's article in your summer 2013 issue of the American Bankruptcy Institute Law Review or at lawreview.abi.org. You can always find more than 130 podcasts at our website, news.abi.org forward slash podcasts. Until next time, from the American Bankruptcy Institute, this is resident scholar Kara Bruce.